Amen. Good morning, Harlem. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Let's go to God in the word of prayer and uh, let's get into our service, our sermon. I do want to thank uh, Benny for that, that uh, communion message, for being so vulnerable. And, and uh, it's just amazing to see how God can definitely help us turn our lives around and, and uh, use our lives as a testimony to help others. Uh, let's continue on with our series of the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, we didn't give it officially a, a title yet, but look forward is the title because uh, there's a lot the church had to look forward to. And the whole book of Revelation, when you look at it in context, it really is about looking forward uh, to the victory that we have in Christ and Christ's victory over Satan. So there's a lot to look forward to uh, in Revelation. Let's go with God in prayer. We're going to look at, take a look at the second church today, the church of Smyrna. Let's pray. Uh, God in heaven, Father, we come before you thanking you uh, for giving us another day. I uh, pray that you'll help us to open wide our hearts and minds to your word and the message you have for us today. Uh, God, we are so encouraged uh, by Jesus. We're so encouraged by examples like our brother Benny, uh, who uh, has overcome and continues to overcome alcoholic addiction in his life. God, as many of us here today can say uh, that we too have overcome uh, Different addictions, different uh, character flaws, different uh, uh, shortcomings in our lives, and all to your glory. Uh, and we pray that you'll help us to overcome whatever lies ahead. In Christ Jesus' name, let my words be yours. Amen. Amen. You know, I think I can, uh, like I said, we're going to look at the church in Smyrna. If I can advance my slide. There we go. The Faithful Church, as it's nicknamed. Um, by many different scholars. Um, I think I can safely say that I've never met anyone who enjoyed suffering. Um, in all my years, I've never heard someone, uh, you know, some people have come up and, and share good things, good news, but no one's ever come up to me and said, James, oh, I am going through something right now, and I love it. I can't get enough of it. I, I have yet to meet a person who enjoys suffering. And in fact, when I go through my own challenges, hardship, I often find myself wondering how could any good come from this? Uh, I know that it's supposed to be for my good, but I can't really see what I'm supposed to get from this. Uh, you know, when I used to work uh, for this major cell phone company, I could not see any good coming from the people I had to deal with uh, every day on the job. And the different schedule changes and, and all these different things. And, and you know, and, and you're like, what good can come from this? And so I don't know of anyone who enjoys suffering. And it's only in retrospect that I realized that God was actually preparing me for what's ahead. You know, sometimes when you're in the throes of, of suffering and trials, it's hard to see a way out of it. It's hard to see the other side until five years after you've gone through it. Then you're like, oh, that's why God allowed me to go through this for today so that I could be prepared for what's going on right now in my life. So I have one simple point from you. This is a very small letter, a short letter to a small church. And my one simple point is, if you endure, you will be prepared for more. 
If you endure, you will be prepared for more. I know we love to talk about suffering. That's why it's so electric in here right now. It's because this is one of our favorite topics. We love to hear about, yes, bro, tell me what I need to do. And, and some of us are suffering right now. And we're wondering, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get through this? Why am I going through this? I thought when I said Jesus is Lord, my life was supposed to get easier. That I was supposed to get everything that I asked for. Why would Jesus allow me to suffer? Hadn't I already suffered before I made Jesus Lord? So why am I still suffering? I thought hardship was washed away with my sin when I got baptized. Or if you've yet to be baptized, well, I thought once I started going to church that my life was getting easier. There is no scripture in the Bible that validates that. In fact, Jesus tells us that if we endure, he will prepare us for more. You know, think about the last crisis in your life, the last difficult circumstance you had to endure. I believe that it prepares us for the next crisis in our lives and difficult circumstance. You know, you guys have known, we've shared the story many times of our son when he went through his, his surgery. You know, the first time we were not prepared for that. But after the second time, we were, we were better prepared. You know, you still don't enjoy it, but you kind of know what to expect. You kind of know, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be hard. We've been down this road before. You know, he was even better prepared for it, even though there were some things that came up we weren't expecting, but at least you're prepared. It's when we're not prepared that suffering looks like a punishment or feels like a bad thing. And we go right to, we connect our suffering with punishment. What did I do to you, Jesus? That you're, you're allowing me to go through this. And God is like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It's not because you did anything wrong. It's because you did everything right. See, when you look at suffering from God's perspective, God doesn't allow us to suffer because we've done something wrong. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. You know, every trial we endure makes us strong enough to take on more. Even if it's the first time you've gone through that specific trial, your faith in God will prepare you. When we trust God, when we, when we allow our faith to be rooted and anchored in the, ver- in the scriptures, whatever comes our way will keep us anchored because we're prepared. You don't know how strong the winds are going to blow, but because you're anchored in God, you'll still be prepared for whatever that storm will bring. You know, I remember when my, one of my first attempts at sharing my faith as a young Christian alone, because, you know, in campus, we're usually always together. But I remember as a young Christian when, when I ventured out and, 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 and I, I would share my faith on my own, inviting people to church, and, and, and I was terrified. You know, I was terrified, even though I'm a six-foot black man from Brooklyn, I was still afraid to talk to strangers on the train or, or at the bus stop. And 
I remember speaking to this guy on the train. He was reading his Bible. And so I thought, well, you know, this, this would be easy. He's halfway there. So I remember reading about the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip in Acts 8. So I thought, oh, this is, this is perfect. I get, to, I get to actually live this out. So I go up to the guy and, and I said, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And I'm expecting him to say no. Someone, I'm hoping someone will teach me because that would just make the whole experience biblical, right? And so I asked him, I said, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he looks at me like, yeah. So now my whole plan just got thrown off course. Now I'm like, okay, what do I say now? And so he goes on, he was reading the book of Luke. And, you know, I, the conversation took a turn that I was not prepared for. In fact, I left that conversation shaken because he pointed out something in the scriptures that I had not read or even thought about. And my faith was shaken. And I thought, whoa, I was disturbed the whole ride home. I thought, man, I, this is this is hard. And I was I was tempted to not talk to anybody anymore. But then I knew if I'd given in, if I'd given in the fear in that moment, then I would no longer be a disciple of Jesus because disciples share their faith. And so after that experience, I decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be prepared for the next conversation. And I went and I studied out that very scripture he asked me to question about. And, and, and I didn't know. I went, I studied it. I read different translations. I asked people questions. I said, I hope no one's ever Ask me about that passage ever again after that. But the point is, I got prepared. And so the next time I shared my faith alone, I was better prepared. The fear was still there. The intimidation was still there, but I didn't let it control me. I didn't let it keep me stuck. And so it's only when we're not prepared that we're disheartened and scared. See, when you're not prepared, you lose heart. And that's when fear sets in. Because if you can get your mind around the possibilities of rejection, then you'll be prepared. You'll be better prepared. Now, you won't know exactly how it comes, but at least you'll know there's a chance this person will reject me. And there's a possibility they may even be harsh and mean about it. But you know what? I'm prepared for it. I'm prepared for it. Are you prepared for more? You see, as, as, as people of Christ, we, we have expectations of God. We have expectations of ourselves. And we have expectations of the church. And there's some expectations that are realistic, and there's some expectations that are not. And we have to make sure that our perspective is in, in, in line with God's because we can really hurt our faith if we expect God to do something for us that he never promised he would do. You know, Stephen looked at the letter Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus a few weeks ago. And today we're going to look at the letter Jesus wrote to the church in Smyrna. Now, as a church leader... These letters scare me because I know Jesus visits our churches. 
And every time I study this out, I wonder, what is Jesus, what would Jesus write about Harlem? If he wrote a letter about the Harlem church, what would he write? What would he say? And those are the things I pray about and try to prepare, like what I think Jesus would point out, helps me to think through how to prepare the church and, and what to, 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 to strengthen the church. So this, is, this one is cool because he had nothing bad to say about Smyrna. So I'm hoping to God that when he visits Harlem that he wouldn't have anything bad to say because it is possible, all right? Two out of seven churches did not get a rebuke. I'm hoping we can get one of those. Jesus must have known that you and I would struggle with fear of suffering because he addresses this very issue in his letter to the church in Smyrna. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can open up or it should be projected behind me. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, it says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your affliction, your afflictions, and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, depending on where your mind is at, you may look at this letter and say, I thought this was supposed to be encouraging. He said... Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. So he's telling me that I'm about to suffer some more. So it wasn't a rebuke. It was a heads up. And, you know, when I read through this, I thought, wow, I don't know. if Maybe I would have preferred a rebuke because I don't want to suffer. I don't like to suffer. And a rebuke can be short and sweet and, you know, all right, amen, I got to change, I got to work on that. But when you think about you're about to suffer, that's when, that's when that fear starts to set in. And he doesn't tell, well, he, you know, one of the things about Jesus that I appreciate is that he tells you what to expect. He tells the church right here, he says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And then he says, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, many, there's been much debate about what the 10 days mean. If it's a literal, you know, the whole book is, is full of sim- symbolism. So some scholars believe that it's, you know, 10 physical days. Some believe that it's 10 specific persecution, types of persecutions. Uh, but the point is, is there's a beginning of it and there's an end to the suffering. And that should give us hope that no suffering lasts forever. And so... It is encouraging to hear, you know, and I'm glad he only said 10 days and not 10 years. So it's relatively short, you know, compared to what we've gone through. Think about the last time you've actually gone through a hardship and gone through it. It it probably doesn't feel as intense right now because it's over. It's in the past. You've gone through it now. You've, You've gone on with life. And so, yes, it's in your memory, 
but you don't feel it as much as you did when you were going through it. And I think that's Jesus' point. It's like you're going to suffer for a little while, but you're going to get through it. You're going to get through it, and I'm going to get through it with you. Now, this is the first time we actually hear of the church of Smyrna. Uh, today, it's, modern, it's uh, the modern-day city of Ishmer in, Ishmer in Turkey, um, you know, buried, rebuilt. It's been destroyed and rebuilt by Alexander the Great's successor and all that stuff. But for the most part, this is the first time you hear about the church in the Bible. You don't see it anywhere else in the scriptures. It's also one of the two churches that Jesus did not rebuke, Philadelphia being the other one. Now, Smyrna was, was considered by some in the ancient world to be the most ideal and beautiful city in the Roman Empire. And it was a city that was fiercely loyal to Rome, so much so that they engaged in emperor worship, which means that they worshiped their emperors as God, as a god. And their emperor, in fact, he, in fact, he made it a law for people to worship him. And so because of their fierce loyalty to Rome, it earned the name the Crown of Asia. Now, the church is reminded early on that the Lord conquered death and has conquered life for their sake. See, Jesus is making this statement I'm the one who lived and came back. These emperors claim to be gods, but they're still dead. So he's reminding the church who their Lord is. Say, look, your Lord is not Caesar. It's Jesus. I'm the one who conquered death. I'm the one from the beginning. In the, I'm everlasting. This is who's writing to you. Not this man. So put your faith in me. So this was a significant statement since Smyrna was the center of emperor worship. Uh, Domitian was the successor of Nero. As we know from history, Nero was one of the church's most intense persecutors. This guy, uh, Domitian, he, he succeeded Nero, and he, he kept the persecution going. In fact, he wanted to one-up Nero. He wanted to make the Christians and Jews in his province suffer even more because he believed, hey, well, if that's what, what Nero did, then I'm going to keep it going. And so he ruled from uh, 81 to 96 uh, A.D. Uh, sometimes he was cruel and paranoid. He thought everyone was out to get him. He thought he would, uh, there would be attempts of, uh, on his life. And so he's very paranoid, didn't really trust a lot of people around him. Uh, he heavily persecuted the Jews and the Christians. He made sport of their death and, and imprisonment. And, uh, and he signed these, these documents into law titled Love and God, basically saying that he was God and that the people were to love him and worship him as a God. So imagine this coming down as a law in our, in our, in our nation. That we are now to revere the leader of our country as Lord and God. Now you may think, oh, ain't that never happened. Well, I'm pretty sure the people of that time thought the same thing. Once a year, you know, those who refused to receive, who would receive to, uh, receive, who would refuse to receive uh, Domitian as Lord and God, 
would receive the death penalty. And those who, you know, once a year, all the citizens, they were required uh, to burn incense at an altar to Caesar. And after they would burn this incense, they would receive a certificate proving that they had done their civil duty. And once they proved, you know, while this was, was really more political uh, and showing more loyalty to, to, to the Roman Empire, once the citizens had uh, submitted their, their sacrifice or their offering to Caesar, they would say, Caesar is Lord. And if they did not say Caesar is Lord, they did not receive the certificate, and they were sentenced to death. So Domitian insisted on being called Lord and God. So you can imagine what the church was up against. You can imagine how the Christians who, who faithfully followed Jesus was being heavily persecuted, so much so that everything, their livelihoods, because they refused to worship this man as Lord, their livelihoods were stripped away from them. They no longer uh, received the benefits and blessings from the Roman Empire. So they were impoverished. And Jesus said, I know your afflictions. I know uh, your, your poverty. He said, I see that. But you're still rich. You're still rich. Now, I know sometimes we look at our bank accounts and we'll, we'll, we'll see something like this and we're like, well, Jesus, you, you see something I don't see. Lord, Lord, remove the scales from my eyes so that I can see what you're talking about because I'm broke. I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm trying to figure life out. So how am I rich? You know, the things that we consider valuable, God considers rubbish. Because they'll never last. But your faith is undying. The Bible says that our faith is of greater worth than gold. That's how God sees your faith. Regardless of the size of your faith, it's still valuable. It's still precious to God. What you drive does not matter. It'll be obsolete next year. Where you live, what you watch your favorite shows on, a year from now, it'll be considered old. If you drive a car, you already know what I'm talking about. Rust sets in. You got to get this tuned up. You got to get this replaced. Sometimes it's a blessing. Sometimes it's a nightmare. The clothes you wear, no one here is wearing the same clothes they wore 20 years ago. Why? Because it gets torn. It doesn't fit anymore. It's outdated. You know, one minute it's in style, the next minute it's not in style. They're bringing back stuff from the 70s, singing that it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. As God looks at all these things that we put value to, and he's like, don't get so caught up in that. Because it's not going to last. But your faith, your hope, and your love, it's precious to me. So that is what I'll focus on refining. I'll give you a whole lot of faith. I'll give you a whole lot of love because that's what's valuable. You don't need another pair of shoes. You don't need another coat. You don't need a new car. These are things that God is saying, don't put your hope in these things because eventually 
they will let you down. So he reminded them that they are rich even though they were poor. The afflictions that Jesus is speaking of are the ones that they were suffering because they were disciples, not because of sin. There are afflictions we deal with because of the consequences of sin. That's not the thing that Jesus is commending. He's commending the afflictions that they were enduring because of him. And when Jesus calls us to be faithful and and we suffer because of it, Jesus, he actually commends that. Those are the things he lifts up and he'll strengthen us through it. He said, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. Compared to so so many people in the world, we are blessed. We are so blessed. We live in a place, we live in a country where we can freely share our faith. We can go buy Bibles. We can teach our children openly. We can sit in coffee shops. Right now, China is working into law using surveillance to track people who are actively sharing their faith. They're, they're employing uh, spies within schools to spy out people who are sharing their faith in schools, at work. They're looking for house churches because of whatever fear they have against their government. But that's how some churches right now are, are what they're going through. We can't even publicly announce our churches in China for fear of their government. So you and I, the fact that we get to meet here openly is a blessing. We are rich, and we need to thank God for that. I think sometimes in America, we, we, we consider suffering other people would consider a blessing. I got to pay $2 for a bottle of water? Whereas if someone in another country was like, you can actually buy water from the store? Things we take for granted are luxuries to people in other places. And Jesus does not want us to get stuck in what we feel is affliction and poverty. Because in his mind, if you have faith in me, you are wealthy. You are rich. You know, the writer of Hebrew describes what many Christians went through in Hebrews 10, verse 32. He says, think back on those earlier days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten, and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown in jail. And when, you owned, when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. They had nothing, literally Because of their faith, yet Christ says they are rich. You know, in other words, Jesus is looking at us like, look, what you're about to lose in this life compared to what you're going to gain in the next, it's like a a multi-trillionaire dropping a penny on the floor. He doesn't even think about it. Jesus said, that's how rich you are, that you can lose that and not even worry about it. Because you're rich in Christ. 
So why are you worried about losing a penny when you're a trillionaire? You're a multi-trillionaire in God's eyes. Don't get so caught up in the things you lose for my sake. So what does that mean for us? You know, you can't go chasing after something because you'll eventually get stuck. Sometimes we chase after things that will eventually leave us stuck. We chase after relationships. And once we get it, now we're stuck in it because it wasn't what we expected it to be. We go chasing after material things, and once we get it, now we're stuck in debt because it didn't bring us the joy that we thought it would bring us. But when you chase after Christ, when you pursue God, you're never stuck. You're always moving forward. You're always moving ahead. You're always overcoming. You're always moving through because you have God walking with you. Jesus commends this church for not getting stuck. Ephesians was stuck because they allowed their love to grow cold and they became complacent. And everything they did was just out of routine and not because they loved Jesus. This church was suffering and was told that they were to expect more suffering. And yet, they were not stuck. You know, sometimes we can be stuck in our own comfort. Because we haven't gone through anything, we can get so complacent, we're so carefree that we're like, man... Life is good. I can pay my bills. My marriage is going great. My kids are obedient. I actually got that promotion I was working for. Found a parking spot at church today, so I got there. I'm like, life is gravy right now. And then the first thing that disrupts or, or, or threatens to disrupt that little utopia we have, we fight it as if we're fighting for our lives. And that could be the very thing that God is sending our way to help us move forward. When everything is good in your life, you can't help anybody. Because nobody can relate to that. But people can relate to suffering. People can relate to fighting with their spouse. People can relate to going through trials with their children. Everyone can relate to be in a New Yorker and not losing their mind. I mean, so there are things, suffering has its place in our lives. It's necessary. And when we use it for God's glory and according to God's will, not only do we move forward, but we can help so many others move forward. The reason we even share our testimony for communion is because we want people to see how God has helped us through our suffering. And, and we amen it because we can relate, we can connect, we're, we're inspired by how God has used someone's life and turned it around. That gives us hope for all the things that we're going through. If we never went through anything, we wouldn't inspire a soul because you hadn't gone through anything. Jesus commends his church for not getting stuck. Their faith, their trust in him gave them all they needed to move forward. 
So you might ask, James, how can I avoid getting stuck? How can I be like the brothers and sisters in Smyrna? I'm glad you asked. It's very simple. Jesus tells them right there, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. And in fact, be faithful even to the point of death. These are decisions. I'm not going to be afraid and I'm going to be faithful to the end. So Jesus is saying that confession you make, once you hear yourself say it, whatever comes your way, you're not going to fear and you're not going to give you're not going to give up. But you got to decide now that I'm not going to be afraid and that I'm going to be faithful to the end. And this is where God comes in and really helps us. You know, God is not going to do for you what you can do for yourself. Now, I know that sounds like it's in the Bible, but it's not. The truth of the matter is, if it's something that you have the ability to do, God's going to let you do it. He's not going to like, he, he's not going to stand around and walk you, you know, like, like a little baby when you're trying to teach a baby how to walk. Once they know how to walk, you let them walk, right? That's what God does. Once you know how to walk, he's going to let you walk. Now, when you fall, he'll be there to help you up, but he's not going to hold your hand and walk you through every little thing in life. Now, I know we like to think it like that. But Jesus was like, guys, when, when, they, when the, the issue came up about feeding, he said, you do it. They were like, well, how are we going to feed these people? Jesus said, you do it. He expected them to walk in faith. Just as God expects us to persevere and endure through our suffering. There may be things you're going through right now that you may say, there's no way I can get through this. And God is like, yes, you can. You absolutely can. That's why I'm allowing you to go through it, because I know you can. You know, sometimes we'll even say things like the Lord won't let you go through more, you, more than you can handle. First of all, that's not biblical. And what ends up happening is that we actually take 1 Corinthians 10 and misinterpret it, take it way out of context because we don't want to suffer and we don't want to see our friends suffering. So we'll say things like the Lord ain't going to give you more than you can handle. Let's look at the scripture first. First Corinthians 10, 13. The temptations in your life are no different. Here's the, first, here's the first thing. The temptations in your life are no different from what others are experiencing. In other words, you're not going through anything new. Everybody is tempted. So let's, let's establish that first. Second, God is faithful. God is with you through every temptation. And then he says, he will not allow you to be tempted, your temptations to be more than you can stand. He's talking about temptation. When you are tempted, in other words, like Jesus said to Smyrna, expect temptation. He will show you a way out so that you can endure. So we have a warning. We have a promise. You will be tempted but I'm going to show you a way out. And I'm not going to allow you to be tempted more than you can endure. So if your temptation right now is intense, you've got to ask yourself, okay, if this is more than I can handle right now, Jesus promised that it would not be more than I can endure. 
Is it because I'm actually giving in? Or is it because I'm allowing, I'm looking for that way out that he promised he would provide? If it's becoming more than you can handle, it's because you're giving into it. Because James tells us that no temptation has seized us beyond what is common to man. And in fact, we're dragged away and enticed by what? Our own desire. So temptation is given power by our desire. It loses power when we look for that way out that Jesus promised that he would give us. So he's talking about temptation here. The truth of the matter is God will absolutely allow you to suffer hardship because it makes us stronger. He will allow you to go through painful trials in relationships because that's how he'll refine you. Whatever God is allowing you to suffer is because that's what's needed to make your character more godly, to make your faith stronger. You may act surprised. He's like, why are you surprised? First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. First Peter chapter 4. If anyone knew about suffering, it was Peter. He watched our Lord suffer firsthand. He said, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange was happening to you. Isn't that how it feels sometimes? What's going on? Peter is like, don't don't be so surprised, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, guess what? You are blessed. Don't feel like it, right? But in God's eyes, when we suffer for him, we're actually blessed for the spirit of of glory, and of God rest on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of other kind of criminal or even as a meddler because they're suffering for their sin. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer, here it is, guys, those who suffer according to God's will. Suffering according to God's will. So that whole saying about God will not let you go through more than you can handle is not biblically accurate. Because God's will is for us to suffer. Why? So we should commit ourselves faithful to Creator and continue to do good. Because suffering is God's tool to refine us, to shape us, to help us, to mold us. And in 1 Corinthians, he says that God, the God of all comfort, will be there to comfort us. So God doesn't leave us out there to dry. God does comfort us because he allows us to go through this. So he knows. He knows. Now, no, God knows what will make you and what will break you. He's only going to send what will 
make you. If he needs to send suffering to break you, it's for a reason. Because a broken and contrite heart is what the Lord desires. Sometimes our stubborn nature requires a little brokenness. Sometimes God has to send us out there and let us get beat up by the world because we're stubborn. We don't want to listen. We don't want to respond to the love and the help he's already surrounded us with. So you know what? I'm going to send you out there, teach you a little lesson, and then I'm going to bring you back home. Because the only way you're going to get this is we got to break that pride. we got to break that stubbornness. I remember when God broke me. It was scary, but it was also refreshing. It was scary because it was painful. But it was refreshing because I no longer felt at odds with God. It was necessary. And you know, throughout your walk, every now and again, God may have to break you. Because there are parts of our hearts, if we're not attended to it, we'll get hard. And the only way to break a hard heart is you got to break it. you got to apply some force. You can't do this to a hard heart. You can't do this to a hard heart. You can't put a Band-Aid on a hard heart. You need to take a jackhammer at that thing. Because sometimes our hearts get so hard we got to break through the surface just to get to the part to where God can replant some good things in our lives. If you endure, you will be prepared for more. Peter says, do not be surprised by your painful trials. Expect it and be prepared for it. You know, the church in Ephesus was threatened to have their light removed because they stopped seeing suffering for Christ as an act of love. So they grew complacent. They strayed away from their first love for doing it for the right reasons. The church in Smyrna was commended because their love compelled them to endure. Their suffering, their their affliction, that love that they had for Jesus is what kept them going is what pushed them through. If you endure, you will be prepared for more, not only for more challenges, but also for more blessings. You know, sometimes we don't really appreciate the blessing until we go through the suffering. We got to understand what it feels like to have things stripped away from us in order to really appreciate when something good is given to us. You know, when this letter was read to the church at Smyrna, Sitting in the congregation was a young man named Polycarp. He he was led to Christ as a child by the apostle John himself. Sixty years later, this young man was now an old man, or mature, depending on how you want to look at that. And he had become the elder of the church in Smyrna. He was eventually arrested for his faith and was commanded like everyone else during that time, to denounce Christ and say Caesar was Lord. And this is what he said. Eighty and six years have I served him, and never once, he never once wronged me. 
How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And then they burned him alive. You know, Polycarp was one of the first Christian martyrs in the early church. Eighty-six years old, he would not bow down. He would not give in because Jesus was Lord. We have not endured anything remotely close to what our brothers and sisters have gone through in the first church. Yet sadly, people are still bowing down and giving up, and Jesus is no longer Lord. If Jesus wrote you a personal message today, a personal letter today, would it be what he wrote to Ephesus, or would it be what he wrote to the church in Smyrna? You know, I hope and pray that our faith will keep us going. I hope and pray that as our brothers and sisters stood firm in their faith, allowed themselves to endure so that God can, can, can allow them to see and go through more, I pray that you and I can stand with those brothers and sisters in faith and that you and I cannot not just say we're Christians, but like our brother Carl, only get stuck if you stop moving. Let's not be a church that stops moving. To God be the glory.